You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of the Collected Works, Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Christ and the Human Soul, composed of three sections. The first of two lectures is The Meaning of Life. The second, I believe, is four lectures, entitled The Spiritual Foundation of Morality. And the rest of the lectures are entitled Anthroposophy and Christianity. And uh, that's ten lectures in total, translated by Agnes Schneeborg de Stor. Lecture 1 is given in Copenhagen on May 23, 1912. In these two evening lectures, I would like to speak to you from the viewpoint of spiritual research about a question people ask repeatedly and deliberately about the question, what is the meaning of life? If in these two evenings we are to draw near to what can be said about this meaning of life, then we shall first have to create a kind of foundation, a kind of basis on which we can build the edifice of knowledge, as it were, that will provide an answer to our question, even if only a brief and sketch-like one. When we initially contemplate the things around us, things that are present in everyday life and can be observed through the senses, and then turn to look at our own life, we can at best only come to the formulation of a question, a difficult, puzzling, disquieting question. We see how the creatures of external nature come into being and die away. Every year in spring we can observe how the earth, stimulated by the forces of sun and cosmos, bestows on us the plants that sprout and blossom, bearing fruit throughout the summer. As autumn approaches, we see how these creations decay and fade away again. Some indeed remain with us for several years, some for very many years, such as our long-lived trees. But even if in many cases they may outlive us, we know that they also pass away, disappear, sink down into that part of the great natural world that is the realm of the lifeless. We know above all that growth and decay govern even the greatest phenomena of nature. We know that even the continents that provide the foundation for our developing civilizations have not always existed in times past, for they have only arisen in the course of time, and we know for sure that they will one day lie in ruins. All around us, then, we see growth and decay. We can observe it, this growth and decay, in the plant and mineral kingdoms and also in the animal kingdom. What is the meaning of it all? All around us there is always something coming into being, always something decaying. What is the meaning of this becoming and this fading away? When we contemplate our own life and observe how we have lived through the years and decades, we can recognize that there, too, we have seen this growth and decay. When we think about our early childhood, we find that it has vanished and has left only memories behind. And what remains as memories can actually give rise to anxious questions about our life. Having undertaken one thing or another, we ask, what did it lead to? What has resulted from my having done it? The most important thing is that we shall have progressed somewhat, that we shall have learned something as a result of it. What usually happens, however, is that only after we have done it do we realize how it ought to have been done. It is only when we are no longer in a position to do something about it that we know how much better it might have been done, so that our mistakes actually become a part of our life. But it is precisely through our mistakes and errors that we gain our most wide-ranging experiences. A question confronts us, and it seems as if what we can capture through our senses and comprehend with our intellect cannot provide us with an answer. This is the position we human beings are in today. Everything that surrounds us presents us with a perturbing problem, with the question, what is the meaning of the whole of existence, and particularly also the question, 
why have we human beings been placed into this existence in the way we have? This is the question that initially presents itself to us. A most interesting legend of Hebrew antiquity tells how in this old Hebrew civilization there was an awareness that this perturbing question, the question we described regarding the meaning of life and especially the meaning of being human, occurs not only to human beings but to other beings as well. This legend is inordinately instructive and runs as follows. When the Elohim were preparing to create the human being in their own image and likeness, beings called ministering angels, that is, spiritual beings ranked lower than the Elohim themselves, asked Yahweh or Jehovah, quote, Why are human beings to be made in the image and likeness of God? Close quote. Then, so the legend continues, Yahweh gathered the animals and the plants that had already sprung forth on earth before human beings existed in their earthly form, and he also gathered the angels, the ministering angels, those in his immediate service. He showed them the animals and plants and asked them what these animals and plants were called, what their names were. But the angels did not know the names of the animals, nor did they know the names of the plants. Then the human being was created as he was before the fall. And again Yahweh gathered the angels and also the animals and plants, and having instructed the animals to pass by in succession for the human being to see, Yahweh asked the human being in the presence of the angels what the names were of the animals, what they were called. And, lo and behold, the human being was able to answer, quote, This animal has this name, that animal has that name, this plant has this name, that plant has that name, close quote. Then Yahweh, or Jehovah, asked the human being, quote, And what is your own name? Close quote. And the human being said, quote, I must actually be called Adam. Close quote. Parenthesis, Adam is related to Adama, meaning from earthly mud, creature of the earth. This is the translation, in quotes, of Adam. Close parenthesis. Yahweh then continued, asking the human being, quote, And what shall I myself be called? Close quote. The human being replied, quote, You shall be called Adonai. You are the Lord of all created beings on the earth. Close quote. Now the angels had an idea of the meaning of human existence on the earth. Religious traditions and religious writings often express the most important of life's riddles in the simplest terms yet there are many difficulties in understanding them. For we must first learn to recognize what lies behind their simplicity. If we succeed in doing so, great wisdom and deep knowledge are revealed, as will also be the case with this legend. For now we shall simply keep it in mind, for these two lectures will give us, in one form or another, an answer to the questions it raises. Now, you know that there is a religion that has put the question about the meaning and value of life by placing it in a staggeringly wonderful form into the very mouth of its own founder. You all know the stories of the Buddha that indicate how he left the palace in which he was born, how he came face to face with the real facts of life, of which in that incarnation he had as yet no inkling while still in the palace and how he was most deeply dismayed about life and pronounced the judgment, in quotes, life is suffering. This declaration, as we know, comprises four elements. Quote, birth is suffering, illness is suffering, old age is suffering, death is suffering, close quote, to which are then added, quote, to be united with those we do not love is suffering, to be separated from those we love is suffering. Not to be able to achieve the things we aim for is suffering. Close quote. And we also know that for those observing this religion, the meaning of life can then be captured in the words, quote, Life, which is suffering, only acquires meaning if it is overcome, if it is transcended. Close quote. In essence, all the various religions, and also all philosophies and views of life, are attempts to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? 
Now, rather than approach this question in a philosophically abstract manner, we shall here review some of the phenomena of life, some of the realities of life, from a more esoteric point of view. We shall endeavor to look more deeply into these facts in order to discover whether a more profound, a more spiritual view of life can bring us something that can help answer this question regarding the meaning of life. Let us take up our subject again at the point where we spoke of the annual growth and decay in sense-perceptible nature, of the life, growth and decay in the plant kingdom. In spring, we see the plants sprouting up out of the earth, and all this germinating, budding life calls forth our joy and delight. We become aware that the whole of our existence is bound up with the plant world, for without it we could not exist. We sense that everything springing up from the earth at the approach of summer is related to our own life, and how in the autumn that which in a certain sense belongs to us is fading away again. It is quite natural to compare our own life with the growth and decay we observe around us to external observation based solely on what can be perceived by the senses and judged by the intellect. It is quite natural to compare the vernal sprouting of the plants out of the earth with our waking up in the morning and the autumnal withering and decaying of the plant world with our falling asleep in the evening. But such a comparison would be quite superficial because it would leave out of account the real circumstances which can be grasped by means of even the more elementary truths of esoteric science. What happens when we fall asleep at night? We know that we leave our physical body and etheric body behind in bed and that with our astral body and our I, capital, we withdraw from our physical and etheric bodies. During the night, between our falling asleep and our waking up, we are in a world of spirit with our astral body and our eye. From this spiritual world, we gather the forces we need. However, it is not only our astral body and our eye, but also our physical body and our etheric body that undergo a kind of restorative process, a, a regeneration, as they lie in bed, separated from the astral body and the eye during our sleep at night. If with clairvoyant vision one looks down from the eye and the astral body to the etheric body and the physical body, one can see what has been destroyed by our daytime life. One sees that what expresses itself as fatigue is actually a destructive process and that it is restored during the night. As a matter of fact, our conscious daytime life as a whole seen in its connection with human consciousness and in its relation to the physical body and the etheric body, is actually a kind of destructive process with respect to the physical and etheric bodies. We always destroy something with our consciousness. And this fact, the fact that we destroy something, manifests as tiredness. What has been destroyed is restored again during the night. Now, if one looks at what happens when we have departed with our astral body and I from the etheric and physical bodies, then it is as if we left behind a field laid waste. But the moment we have gone, the moment we have left the physical and etheric bodies, this field gradually begins to restore itself. It is then as if the forces belonging to the physical and etheric bodies were beginning to bloom and sprout and as if a whole vegetation were arising on the scene of destruction. The further the night advances and the longer we sleep, the more does the budding and sprouting continue in our etheric body. The closer we get to morning, and the more we enter our physical and etheric bodies again with our astral body, the more does a kind of withering and wilting begin again with respect to our physical and etheric bodies. In short, when the eye and astral body look down from the spiritual world on our physical and etheric bodies as we go to sleep at night, they see the same manifestation as the one we observe in the great world outside when the plants germinate and sprout in spring. Therefore, if we want to make a true comparison, one that is more on an intimate level, then we must compare our falling asleep and the earlier part of our sleeping state at night 
with springtime in nature. And the time of our waking up, the time when our eye and the astral body are entering the physical and etheric bodies again with autumn in nature. This, not the opposite, is the correct comparison to draw. The opposite one is drawn from an external point of view. In human beings, springtime corresponds to falling asleep and autumn to waking up. But how does this matter appear when a clairvoyant observer someone who can truly look into the spiritual world, directs his gaze to external nature and observes what takes place there in the course of the year. What then presents itself to spiritual vision teaches us that we must not compare things in an outer, but rather in an inner sense. What clairvoyant observation shows is that just as the physical and etheric bodies of the human being are connected with the astral body and the eye, so the earth is connected with what we call its spiritual aspect. The earth, too, is a body, a vast body, and looking at it only in relation to its physical part is like looking at a human being only in relation to the physical body. We only see the earth in its completeness when we regard it as the body of spiritual beings, just as in the case of the human being we see the spirit as belonging to the body. There is, however, one difference. A human being is a single, unified entity governing the physical and etheric bodies. A single, unified, soul and spirit entity is connected with the human physical and etheric bodies. But there are a great many spirits belonging to the earth's body. The sole spiritual element in the human being is a unity, whereas with respect to the earth, It is a multiplicity. This is the most obvious distinction. Having acknowledged this difference, we shall find everything else in a certain sense analogous. What spiritual vision observes in spring is that the earth spirits, for this is what we call them, withdraw from the earth to the same degree as the plants sprout forth from the earth and greenery spreads. But again, it is not quite the same as with the human being, For rather than withdrawing completely, as is the case with the human spirit, the earth spirits reposition themselves, in a certain sense moving around to the other side of the earth. When it is summer in one hemisphere, it is winter in the other. What happens is that the spirit and soul part of the earth moves from the northern to the southern hemisphere when summer is approaching in the north. That does not alter the fact, however, that a clairvoyant observer experiencing springtime anywhere on the globe sees the spirits withdrawing from the earth. He observes how these spirits rise up and move out into the cosmos. Rather than seeing them move to the other side, he sees them withdrawing. Just as he sees the eye departing together with the astral body when a human being falls asleep, just in that same way, the clairvoyant observer sees the earth spirits departing from what they had been tied to, bound up with. During the winter, when the earth is covered in ice and snow, the spirit forces are directly united with the earth. During the autumn, the opposite occurs. Then clairvoyant vision sees the earth spirits approaching and reuniting with the earth. In actual fact, something then arises in the earth that resembles what takes place in a human being, namely a kind of self-consciousness. During the summer, the spiritual part of the earth knows nothing of what goes on around it in the cosmos. But in winter, the spirit of the earth knows what is occurring all around it in the cosmos, just as a human being on waking up knows and sees what is taking place around him or her. The analogy is entirely valid, except that it is the reverse of what outer consciousness comes to. However, If we want to consider this matter in its entirety, we cannot simply say, when the plants sprout and burst forth from the earth in spring, the earth spirits depart. For, in fact, with the budding and sprouting of the plants, mightier spirits rise up as though out of the depths, out of the interior of the earth. Consequently, the mythologies were right to distinguish between the higher and the nether gods, 
And when people spoke of the gods who leave the earth in spring and return in autumn, they meant the higher gods. But there are mightier, older gods. The Greeks called them the Thonic gods. Readers aside, spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C, Thonic gods. End of readers aside. These arise in summer, when everything is budding and sprouting, and they sink down again in winter, when the real earth spirits unite once more with the body of the earth. These are the facts. And I would now like to mention that a certain idea taken from spiritual nature research is of immense importance for our lives as human beings. For this research reveals that when we consider an individual human being, we actually have something before us that is like an image of the great earth being itself. What do we see when we observe the plants as they begin to bud and sprout? We see exactly the same as what is taking place within the human being while asleep. We see how the one corresponds exactly with the other. How individual plants are related to the human body, what their significance is for the human body. This can only be recognized when such connections are understood. For it is indeed a fact, if one watches closely as a human being goes to sleep, one sees how everything begins to bud and sprout in his physical body and his etheric body, how a whole vegetation springs up in him, and how the human being is in truth a tree or a garden with plants growing in it. Someone following this with clairvoyant vision sees how the sprouting and budding within the human being corresponds to what is sprouting and budding in outer nature. And so you may be able to form a picture of what may come about in the future when spiritual science, which for the most part is still regarded as nonsense today, is applied to life and made fruitful. Let us take the example of a person in whom some life processes are not functioning properly. Then let us observe, when this person falls asleep, which kinds of plant are missing when his physical and etheric bodies begin to unfold their vegetative growth. Now, when we turn to the earth and notice that whole species of plants are absent at some location on the earth, we know that something must be wrong with the life-being of the earth. And it is the same when certain plants are missing in a person's physical and etheric bodies. In order to remedy the deficiency in that person, we need only search on the earth for the plants that are missing in the person in question and use their juices either in dietary form or as medicine. We shall then, from their innate forces, find the relationship between medicine and illness. This example shows us how spiritual science will be able to intervene directly in life, although at present we are only at the beginning of these things. With this example I have given you, in the form of a comparison, some nature-inspired thoughts about how human beings through their whole essential makeup are related to the environment in which they are placed. Let us now look at the matter from a spiritual point of view. And here I would like to begin by calling attention to something rather important. In its endeavors to decipher the meaning of life, spiritual science provides a view of the evolution of humanity from the esoteric perspective, without according any outer preference to one particular creed or worldview over another. Within our spiritual movement, it has often been emphasized that we can identify what our earthly humanity experienced and developed immediately after the great Atlantean catastrophe had befallen the earth. The first great post-Atlantean civilization we then come across is the ancient sacred culture of India. Here in your city, we have already spoken about this too, stressing the exaltedness of this sacred Indian culture by pointing out that what has survived in the Vedas or in other written traditions are merely echoes of it. It is only in the Akashic record that we can catch a glimpse of the primeval teachings that issued forth from that time. There we look upon heights never since regained. The subsequent cultural epochs have quite different tasks. We also know that a descent has taken place since then, 
that there will be a new ascent and, as already mentioned, that spiritual science has the task to prepare for this ascent. We know that in the seventh post-Atlantean cultural epoch, there will be a kind of renewal of the ancient sacred Indian civilization. In this sense, then, we do not give preference to any religious view or creed, for all are measured with the same yardstick. Each one is described in all its characteristics, and the deeper truths in all of them are sought. The important thing is to focus on the essentials. We must not allow ourselves to stray off course in contemplating the essential nature of every religious creed. And if we keep this in mind in approaching the various world views, we can identify one fundamental difference. We recognize that there are world views of a more Eastern nature and others that have permeated the cultures of the West. Once we clearly identify this difference, we will find that it provides insights into the meaning of existence. We discover that the ancients already had something which will cause us a considerable effort to regain, namely, teachings about reincarnation. The eastern streams possessed this knowledge as something springing from the profoundest depths of existence. You can still see how these oriental streams shaped their whole life on the basis of these teachings when you look at the relationship oriental people have with their bodhisattvas and their buddhas. If you keep in view how reluctant oriental people are to select any one single figure with a definite name as the ruling power in human evolution, then you understand at once how they attach much greater importance to focusing on the individuality who passes from one life to the next. Orientalists say that there is such and such a number of bodhisattvas, high beings who sprang from humanity and then gradually evolved to an exaltedness that can be described by saying, quote, a being has lived through many incarnations and then become a bodhisattva, as did Gautama, the son of King Sudhadana. He was a bodhisattva and then became a Buddha. Close quote. The name Buddha however, is given to many after they have lived through many incarnations, then become a bodhisattva and thereafter ascend to the next stage of eminence, that of a Buddha. The name Buddha is a general designation. It denotes a degree of human worthiness and is meaningless without taking into account the being of spirit and soul who has lived through many incarnations. Brahmanism fully agrees with Buddhism in that it focuses on the individuality who lives through the many successive personalities rather than on the single personalities. For it amounts to the same thing whether a Buddhist says, quote, a bodhisattva is destined to ascend to the highest possible degree of human worthiness and has to live through many incarnations in order to attain it, and for me the highest is the Buddha, close quote, or whether the adherent of Brahmanism says, quote, the bodhisattvas are indeed highly developed beings who ascend to Buddhahood, but they spring from the avatars who are higher spiritual individualities, close quote. For you see, what is inherent in both these eastern points of view is the knowledge of a spiritual entity who lives through many incarnations. Now let us look at the West and see who are considered the great and mighty there. In order to gain a deeper insight into this, we have to consider the ancient Hebrew point of view and consider the personal element. When we speak of Plato, Socrates, Michelangelo, Charlemagne or others, we are always speaking of a person we point to the well-defined life of a personality and what that personality represented for humanity. In our Western culture, we do not focus on a life that has moved on from person to person, for it has been the task of Western culture, at least for a time, to pay attention to the single earth life. When people speak of a Buddha in the East, it is understood that the designation, in quotes, Buddha, is a title of eminence applicable 
to many personalities. But when the name Plato is spoken of, we know that this designates a single personality. This has been the education in the West, where, to begin with, the personal aspect had to be esteemed and respected. Now let us take a look at our own time. How should we evaluate this whole sequence of events today? For a certain period of time, Western culture has trained humanity to pay attention to the personality. But now the time has come to augment the personal element with the individual aspect, with the individuality. We must reclaim the individual element, but now strengthened, enlivened by an understanding of the personal. Let us take a specific case and in this connection begin by looking back to the ancient Hebrew worldview that preceded the Western view of the world. Consider a mighty personality such as the prophet Elijah, 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 2.14. We may indeed initially describe him as personality, for in the West he is seldom regarded in any other way. If we look at the personality as such, leaving all details aside, we see Elijah as being very important in world evolution. He gives the impression of something like a forerunner of the Christ impulse. Looking back to the time of Moses, we see something being foretold to the people. We see the God in man being proclaimed. Quote, I, the God who was, who is, and who shall be. Close quote. In the I, capital, he must be grasped. But among the ancient Israelites, he was perceived as the folk soul of the people. Elijah went beyond that. He could not yet make it clear that the I lives in the single human individuality as the highest divinity. For he could not elucidate more to the people of his time than the world was ready to receive. Nevertheless, it can be seen as a forward leap in evolution. Whereas the Mosaic culture of the ancient Israelites was conscious of the fact that, quote, the highest lies in the I, close quote, and this I found expression in the folk soul of the people in the time of Moses, we find Elijah already pointing to the individual human soul. But a further impulse was needed, and once more we see a kind of forerunner appearing in the personality of John the Baptist. And again, it was in significant words that the forerunner quality of John the Baptist found expression. What do these words mean? An important esoteric fact is indicated by these words. They express the fact that human beings, once as primordial humanity, possessed an ancient clairvoyance which enabled them to look into the spiritual world, into divine activity. Then, however, they turned more toward the material world and the ability to see into the spiritual world was closed off. John the Baptist alludes to this fact when he says, quote, Change the attitude of your soul. Look no longer to what you can gain in the physical world. Be watchful. A new impulse, close quote, he meant the Christ impulse, continue quote, is at hand. Therefore I say unto you, seek the spiritual world in your very midst, close quote. This is where the spiritual element enters, with the Christ impulse. And with these words, John the Baptist became a forerunner of the Christ impulse. Now we turn our attention to another personality to the remarkable personality of the painter Raphael, who upon some reflection appears unusual to us. We need only compare Raphael as a painter of the Italian people with painters of a later period, for example, Titian. Anyone with an eye for such things, even with only reproductions available for comparison, will soon discover the difference. Look at Raphael's paintings and at Titian's paintings. Raphael painted in such a way that he put Christian ideas into his pictures. He painted for European people as Western Christians. His pictures are comprehensible to all Western Christians and will become more so as time goes on. 
Compare this with the later painters who painted almost exclusively for the Roman Latin people, so that even the schisms of the church found expression in their pictures. Which were Raphael's most successful paintings? The ones in which he was able to proclaim the impulses inherent in Christianity, where he was able to express some aspects of the relationship of the Jesus child to the Madonna, where he was able to present the Christ relationship to the Madonna as something that is an impulse of feeling. That is where he is at his best. These are also essentially the things he painted best. We do not have a crucifixion by him, for example, but there is a transfiguration. Wherever he could paint the budding, the germinating aspects, the things to be proclaimed, there he painted with joy and made his greatest and best pictures. It is essentially the same with the effect his pictures produce. If you have a chance to come to Germany some day and see the Sistine Madonna in Dresden, it is even said that Germans may rejoice to have such a celebrated painting in their midst, one which may actually be regarded as the flower of the art of painting. Then you will realize that this work of art reveals a mystery of existence, Goethe, in his time, having traveled from Leipzig to Dresden, heard something quite different about the painting of the Madonna. Officials at the Dresden Art Gallery said something like this to him, quote, One of the pictures we have is by Raphael, but it is nothing special. It is badly painted. The child's glance, actually the whole child itself, everything about it, is common. The same has to be said about the Madonna. One can only assume that a dauber painted her. And then there are these figures at the bottom. One can't tell whether they are meant to be children's heads or angels. This uncouth opinion is what Goethe heard at that time, so that initially he failed to appreciate the painting properly. Everything we now hear about the picture was not commonly acknowledged until later and the fact that reproductions of Raphael's pictures began their triumphal march around the globe is a direct result of this new appreciation. We need only call to mind what England in particular has done for the reproduction and circulation of Raphael's pictures. However, the real outcome of the efforts made in England with respect to reproducing and circulating Raphael's pictures will only be recognized when people have learned to look at these things more from the point of view of spiritual science. And so through his pictures, Raphael can be seen as an early forerunner of a Christianity that will become cosmopolitan. For a long time, Protestantism speculatively regarded the Madonna as something specifically Catholic. But today, the Madonna has permeated all the Protestant countries too, as we rise to a more spiritual interpretation, to a higher interdenominational Christianity. This will more and more be the case, and if we may hope for such results in the realm of interdenominational Christianity, then what Raphael has done will also benefit the realm of spiritual science. Remarkably, we have now encountered three personalities and all three have something of the quality of being a forerunner of Christianity. Let us now look at these three personalities with a spiritual view. What does it teach us? Spiritual observation teaches us that the same individuality lived in Elijah, in John the Baptist, and in Raphael. However impossible it may seem, it was the same soul who lived in Elijah, in John the Baptist, and in Raphael. When spiritual observation, through investigative research, not outer theoretical comparisons, reveals that it is the same soul who is present in Elijah, in John the Baptist, and in Raphael, we now have to ask, how can it be that Raphael the painter became the vehicle of the individuality who had lived in John the Baptist? Can we imagine that the remarkable soul of John the Baptist lived in the forces that existed in Raphael? Again, esoteric research can come in here, in such a way, however, that it does not merely put theories out into the world, but that it describes things as they really are, as they are embedded in life. 
How do people write biographies of Raphael today? Even the best, this can be seen anywhere. Simply mention that Raphael was born on Good Friday of the year 1483. Yet, it is not for nothing that Raphael was born on a Good Friday. Even this birth date proclaims his exceptional position in Christianity, showing how profoundly and significantly he is connected with the Christian mysteries. It was on a Good Friday, then, that Raphael was born. His father was Giovanni Santi. He died when Raphael was eleven years old. When he was eight years old, his father apprenticed him to a painter who was, however, not of any special eminence. But if one realizes what lived in Giovanni Santi, Raphael's father, one receives a particular impression that is further strengthened when the matter is investigated in the Akashic Records. What becomes apparent then is that much more lived in the soul of Giovanni Santi than he was able to express as a personality. Thus we can agree with the Duchess who spoke these words at the time of his death. Quote, a man full of light and truth and purest faith has died. Close quote. As a spiritual researcher, one can say that a far greater painter lived in him than could come into full effect outwardly. His outer capacities, those dependent on his physical and etheric organs, were not developed in Giovanni Santi. For that reason, he could not bring the capabilities of his soul to full expression, although a truly great painter lived in his soul. Giovanni Santi died when Raphael was eleven years old. Now, if one investigates these circumstances, then one sees how true it is that although the human body is lost at death, the longings, the aspirations, the impulses of the soul continue to exist and continue to be active where they have the closest connections. A time will come when spiritual science will be made fruitful for life, as it can already be made fruitful today by those who have made this knowledge alive in themselves and have not really grasped it theoretically. Permit me to interpolate something here before continuing with Raphael. The examples I give do not involve mere speculation. On the contrary, they are always taken from life itself. Suppose you have children to bring up. If you watch the children's capabilities, you soon notice the individual element in each child. But such things can really only be noticed by the person bringing up the children. Now, if a child's mother or father dies while the child is still young, leaving only one parent still living, one may notice that certain inclinations become apparent in the child that were not there before and are therefore difficult to explain. But if we are educating children, we have to concern ourselves with such things and would do well to say to ourselves, quote, even though people generally consider the content of spiritual scientific books as foolishness, I will endeavor not to take it as such, but rather keep an open mind and explore whether it might be correct after all. Close quote. Looking at things in this way, we would soon discover that some forces were already there in the child, and that other forces are now working into those the child already had. Let us suppose, then, that once the father has passed through the gate of death, certain qualities that had lived in him now begin to show up in the child, with a certain intensity. If we make this assumption and look upon the matter in this way, then we will have applied insights coming to us through spiritual science in a sensible way. And as we will soon discover, we will then be able to find our way in life, whereas before we did not. So the one who has gone through the gate of death remains united, through his forces, with those who were close to him in life. People do not observe things closely enough, otherwise they would notice more frequently that children change after the death of their parents, that they are very different from how they were before. Not enough attention is paid to these things at present, but a time will come when people will notice these things. Let us now look at Raphael again. Giovanni Santi, the father, died when Raphael was eleven years old. And even though the father had not achieved any special perfection as a painter, a powerful imagination remained his 
and this then permeated the soul of Raphael and was further developed there. Having observed this soul, we do not belittle or undervalue Raphael. If we say that Giovanni Santi lived on in Raphael's soul, and that this is why Raphael appears to us as someone whose personality has reached completion, as someone incapable of reaching any higher, because a man who has died gave life to his works. We now understand, since the vibrant forces of John the Baptist are reborn in Raphael's own soul, and the forces of Giovanni Santi now also live in his soul, that these two elements together were able to bring about the result that stands before us as Raphael. It is true that at the present time we cannot yet speak publicly of such extraordinary things, but it may be possible in fifty years' time, for evolution is progressing quickly and current attitudes are rapidly nearing their decline. If we really consider these things, then we will find that in spiritual science it is our task to look at all aspects of life from a new perspective. Just as in future times, healing will take the form I have indicated, so will people then also reflect on the remarkable miracles of life by incorporating into these reflections the deeds that come out of the spiritual world from human beings who have passed through the gate of death. Incidentally, while speaking about the riddles of life, I would like to draw your attention to two more things, things that can really epitomize the meaning of life. One has to do with the fate that is befalling the works of Raphael. When you look at reproductions of his pictures today, you are not seeing what Raphael painted. The same applies whether you travel to Dresden or to Rome, for even the originals have already deteriorated so much that you cannot claim to be looking at the pictures of Raphael. It is easy to see what will become of them when you consider the fate of Leonardo da Vinci's title Last Supper, which is increasingly deteriorating. Anyone contemplating this realizes that these pictures will eventually fall to dust, and that, sadly, everything that has ever been created by great human beings will disappear. And since these things are doomed to vanish, we may well ask, what is the meaning of this creation and decay? We shall see that ultimately nothing remains of what any single personality has created. The other fact I would like to put before you is this. If aided by spiritual science, we wish to understand and must understand Christianity today, Christianity as an impulse that works for the future, in the way I have explained earlier, then we shall need certain fundamental concepts that can give us insight into how the Christ impulse will continue to work. We need these concepts. It may seem strange that we are confronted by the fact that we must speak about a developing Christianity. This is, however, a fact. And we need spiritual science to point this out. Now there is a personality in whose work we find the truths of spiritual science expressed in a special form, namely in the form of short, pointed sentences. When we occupy ourselves with this personality, we find in him much that is significant for spiritual science. This person is the German poet Novalis. A study of his writings reveals that he is able to describe the future of Christianity from the esoteric truths contained in it. And spiritual science shows us that his is the same individuality as Raphael's, the same individuality as John the Baptist's and Elijah's. What we have here again is a foreseeing of the further development of Christianity. This fact is of an esoteric nature, for no one can infer this through ordinary reasoning. Let us look at the various images again. We are confronted by the tragic circumstance of the disintegration of the creations and works of single personalities. Raphael appears and lets his interdenominational Christianity flow into human souls. Yet, we have the foreboding that his creations will eventually disintegrate, that his works will fall to dust. Then Novalis appears in order to bring a renewed effort to the task and to continue what he had worked on, 
what he had begun. And now, the idea is no longer so tragic, for we see that even as the personality in all its aspects dissolves, and even as the created works disintegrate, the core of its being lives on and continues the work it had begun. Here, once again, our attention is directed to the individuality. And because we have so firmly adhered to the Western view of life and hence concentrated only on the personality, we are now all the more able to grasp the full significance of the individuality. We can see then how significant it is that the East directed its attention to the individuality, to the bodhisattvas, who go through many incarnations, and how significant it is that the West initially turns its attention to the single personality, in order to then eventually be able to come to an understanding of the individuality. Now, I suspect that there are many anthroposophists who will say, quote, well, this is something we will simply have to accept when we are told these things about Elijah, John the Baptist, Raphael, and Novalis, close quote. This will indeed be the case for many, that they initially will have to take it on trust, just as is the case for most of us when scientific statements are made about the findings of spectrum analysis as regards particular metals or the Orion Nebula. Some people have certainly made such investigations themselves, but the others, the majority, have to believe what they are told. This, however, is not the essential point at all. The important thing is that spiritual science is now at the beginning of its development and will increasingly bring souls to the point where they develop their own insight into such matters as we have discussed today. In this respect, spiritual science will take human evolution forward very rapidly. I have set out certain aspects arising from the spiritual scientific view of life. Take only the three points we have considered, and you will see that by understanding how life is related to the spirit of the earth, the art of healing can be given a new direction and a new impulse, and that Raphael can only be understood in the right way when not only the forces of his own personality are taken into account, but also those forces that came from his father. The third point is that we can bring up children when we understand what the situation is regarding the interplay of forces working in them. People readily acknowledge that in their outer lives they are surrounded by countless forces which continually affect them that they are continually influenced by atmosphere, temperature, and other climatic conditions in their environment. And we all know that these things do not interfere with our freedom. These are all factors that are already taken into account today. But that we are also permanently surrounded by spiritual forces, and that these spiritual forces should be investigated, this is what human beings will learn through spiritual science. We shall learn to take these forces into account and shall have to reckon with them in important cases of health and disease, in situations regarding education and life. We shall have to be mindful of influences that come from our surroundings, from the supersensible world, when, for instance, someone's friend dies and that person then begins to display sympathies and ideas that were characteristic of the friend. What has just been alluded to applies not only to children but to people of all ages. People are not necessarily aware how the forces of the supersensible world are working in them, but their general frame of mind, as well as their state of health or illness, can show us the effect of these forces. And even wider is the range of circumstances indicating a connection between human beings and their life on the physical plane and the realities of the supersensible world. Let me put before you a simple fact that will demonstrate the nature of this connection, a situation that is not invented but has been observed in many cases. At a specific point in time, a person begins to notice that he has feelings different from those he is used to, that he has sympathies and antipathies he had never known before that he now succeeds in doing things that caused difficulties before. He has no explanation for this. Those around him, 
cannot explain it to him, and even the circumstances of life itself cannot offer an explanation. Once we have noticed this phenomenon and then carefully observed the person in question, and it is true that one needs to have an eye for such things, EYE, we shall find that this person now knows things he did not know before and does things he could not do before. If we examine the matter further and have familiarized ourselves with the teachings of spiritual science, then we shall hear something like this from him, quote, I am feeling peculiar and very strange. I keep dreaming of someone I have never seen in my life, someone who keeps coming into my dreams, although I have never had anything to do with this person. When we pursue the matter further, we will find that until now he has had no reason to concern himself with this person. But that the person has now died and has begun to approach him in the spiritual world. This person having come sufficiently close to him even appeared to him in the form of a dream that was actually more than a dream. And it is from this person whom he had not known during his lifetime but who after death has now gained influence on his life, that the impulses arose which he had not known before. It is not a question here of saying, quote, what we are dealing with in this case is nothing but a dream, close quote. The important thing, rather, is to find out what the dream signifies. It may actually be something which, although it appears in the form of a dream, is closer to reality than our external consciousness. Does it matter, after all, whether Edison invented something in a dream or with his daytime waking consciousness? What matters is whether the invention is true, whether it is practical and useful. In the same way, it does not matter whether an experience takes place in dream consciousness or in external physical consciousness. What is of importance is whether the experience is true or not. Let us now summarize what has become clear from these considerations. We have come to understand that if we learn to approach life with the insights gained from esoteric science, then life presents itself in quite a different light from the way it would be understood without esoteric science. In this respect, people who are very learned in materialistic ways of thinking are rather naive, as can be seen at almost any time. On my way here in the train today, I picked up a pamphlet by a German physiologist that had just been published in its second edition. The author maintains that we cannot speak of, in quotes, active attentiveness in the soul, of the soul directing its attention to anything, that everything, rather, depends on the functioning of the various ganglia of the brain, that since these tracks have to be made by the thoughts, everything depends on how the individual brain cells function and that no intensity of soul, no matter how strong, can intervene, because everything depends entirely on whether or not a particular connecting link has been set up in our brain. These learned materialists really are oddly naive. When you get hold of something like this, you cannot help thinking how simple-minded these people are. The same pamphlet mentions the fact that the centenary of Darwin's birth has recently been celebrated and that both qualified and unqualified people spoke at the ceremony. Naturally, the author of the pamphlet considers himself to be especially qualified, and this is then followed by the whole brain cell theory and its application. But where is the logic in all this? If one is used to considering things from the standpoint of truth and then sees what these, in quotes, grown children have to say regarding the meaning of life, then one cannot help thinking that these statements do not amount to much more than saying that it is nonsense to claim that human intentions have had any impact on the way the railway systems are laid out across the face of Europe. For this would be the same as taking all the locomotives with their various parts and functions at any given point in time and claiming that each one has this or that function and runs in this or that direction, but that since all the tracks meet at certain junctions, all the locomotives can be diverted to run in any direction. The result would be a great disarray of locomotives and trains on European railway lines. 
and it is just as nonsensical to claim that what takes place in the brain cells in the form of living human thoughts depends entirely on the condition of the cells. When such learned scholars then end up listening to a lecture about spiritual science, they regard what they hear as downright foolishness. They are firmly convinced that human intention can never have anything to do with the mode and manner in which the European locomotives run, that it depends rather on how they are stoked up and driven. This is where we stand today with regard to the question about the meaning of life. On the one hand, it is very much obscured, and on the other, the spiritual facts are pressing in upon us, bringing together what has been said today, and with this as our basis, we are now able to put the following question before our soul and formulate it in a manner befitting spiritual science. What is the meaning of life and existence, and especially of human life and human existence? The end of Lecture 1